0: This show is part of the Stuff Podcast Network. Welcome, gather round the fireside and listen to a tale Of yon Macool, Coo Cullen, Deirdre, all the sorrows grow on your wail From giants right down to fairies, above the drooping and solitary And most are sometimes scary Anything goes by the fireside Hello and welcome to Fireside, the Irish storytelling podcast. Each episode of Fireside, we take a story from folklore or mythology, we retell it, have a chat about the tale itself and about the craft, the culture and the history of storytelling. My name is Kevin C. Olihan, I am your host and your Fireside Bard. Welcome to episode 160 of Fireside. Today on the Irish Storytelling Podcast, we continue our look at Gráinne Whale, Grace O'Malley, Ireland's Pirate Queen. This episode is called Well More Than Mrs. Mate, which is an incredible. Quote as you will soon learn, and this episode centers all around the two most important relationships in Gronja Whale's life, which was that of her second husband, Richard of Iron Burke, and her youngest son, Tibbet Nalong, tib- Theobald of the ships. But first, a very well big welcome to any new and indeed returning listeners. If this is your first episode, why don't you at least head back to our first episode looking at Grony Whale, Ireland's pirate queen, a few episodes go and if you're a returning listener as always thank you so so much for your continued support if you have not done so already please do follow me on instagram at firesidebard email me at the fireside at gmail.com Uh, If you really want to support the podcast, you can do so in a few ways. You can order my book, my book of poetry, Garden Sea, a neo-myth of home forming the history, the folklore, the mythology of Ireland with my own experiences of growing up in the East Coast there. That is available to order on Kindle, on the Amazon.co.uk or any Amazon around the world. And it's able to order on on paperback at headstuff.org all of the links are in the description below thank you so much to all of you who continue to buy it each and every week we want to keep pushing and pushing it uh, getting it through its first print run of which i am inordinately proud and thank you all for those who have ordered it so far uh, you have made it all all the more worthwhile in doing in the first place, and more is certainly on the way. And if you really want to support the podcast directly, you can do so by joining HeadStuff Plus at headstuffpodcast.com. The link is also in the description below. Where for as little as five euro a month, although you can pay more if you so choose. You can gain access to not just bonus content for Fireside, but for all of the podcasts on the Head Stuff Podcast Network, and there are more of them each and every month, so the incentive only grows. But those are the hard sells out of the way. Yeah, The story for this week, I should say uh, this episode is coming out a few days late. I do apologize for that. You can probably still tell it in my voice, but uh, I have been not under the weather, I just have kind of been struggling with my voice in the last couple of weeks. I'm still over in Dubai playing at the World Expo at the Irish Village. I'm doing six gigs a week. I've played, I think, between like 40 and 50 gigs in the last two months. Uh, it's not a complaint. I'm very, very grateful to be gigging that much, especially over with uh, the amount of work lost over the past couple of years. Uh, but naturally enough, it has taken its toll. And I've been trying to just take it handy wherever I possibly can um and not, not record the podcast as a real result of that, but just this week particularly, it was quite bad. So I said, I'd wait a couple of days and just record two and a go. So next week's episode will still come out within like two days of this. So we'll get back on our schedule and then hopefully ahead of ourselves once more, because I have a little bit more of a trajectory insight. But all good otherwise, a very, very tired feeling... Um, Burnt out in a in a good way though it 's definitely a good it 's good that this feeling this feeling is unfamiliar of course with with the events we 're all used to an incredible exhaustion and burnout in a different way from the last couple of years so it 's very nice to feel burnt out from work once more um, so it's just about getting reused to this new habit and hopefully to keep the fires burning and it'll only grow and grow from here. It's really nice for the calendar to look more and more booked up. Uh, once again, I'll be heading to back to Australia. Those I would love to one day I will just listen back to all of the episodes of Fireside to trace the journeys, the various journeys I've been on over the past three years, particularly this year where there was colossal highs and colossal lows. And thank you so much to all of you who have continued throughout that. I'd like to never make it too much about myself, make it more about the stories. But still, I always like to... I often wonder, should I, like, phase out these introductions and the the post-chats at all? Like, I never know if people enjoy my just stupid, insipid ramblings, but they also is where I have a chance to come through and not something that's pre-written, so that's why I like to always just have a little bit of an informal chat still before the episodes kick off. But with that out of the way, the episode for this week, so this is part three of our look at Gráinne Whale and these these just get deeper and deeper and I'm I grow more and more satisfied with when as people might remember at the first first episode I did on Granuel a few weeks ago I didn't know how many episodes I was going to do on her I thought it could be like between 3 and 5 but every one I do it just seems to grow and it seems there's more and more insight which is really really good because I wanted I wanted to do as much as I could on her um without ever I was never going to break it up. I always like these episodes to be, stand on their own, so that if you listen to them out of order, or if you just listen to one, you'll be able to get a full context and a full story. That's naturally trickier to do when you're dealing with a historical figure as Grace O'Malley is, and I'm adapting. I'm adapting from mainly a biography of Grand Noël called uh, "Grace O'Malley, Ireland's Pirate Queen" by Anne Chambers, great historian, and I naturally did. I'm not doing just her biography in my own words. I'm definitely trying to tell individual stories and gain individual fireside episodes from the vast life of Gráinne And well. As I frequently say, my disclaimer always is I'm not a historian. If anything, I am a storyteller and I feel both liberated and occasionally bound in in not a bad way, by dealing with a historical figure. Because with a historical figure, you can't just make up things naturally and can't tell completely your own version, like I have the freedom to do with a lot of the folklore, uh, because that's the point of it, is that it grows and grows and is reshaped and retold with each new version, and that these that's how these stories are kept alive, by people putting their own mark on it so that they don't belong to any one person. But with Grania Whale, naturally... You don't want to steer people in a wrong way by just saying something that there is no account for. That said, because Grace O'Malley lived so long ago and because Gaelic law tried to totally erase her from history, essentially, so that the vast majority of what we've had, and this has been a main theme throughout the stories about Grace O'Malley so far, is that if we didn't have the folktales and the legends of Granuel, we wouldn't still have her in our memory and her legend wouldn't have survived long enough to the modern age where there was still this huge interest to try and sort the fact from the fiction. So I'm allowed to blend these two together and not steer people astray, but not also feel totally bogged down uh, to make it clear what is the fact and the fiction, only for the sense of the flow. And so with that in mind, uh, I'm particularly fond of this quote of this title, which will be explained in the body of the story. But this is Your Whale, well more than Mrs. Mate, on Fireside. Your <laughs> Whale, well more than Mrs. Mate. The average life expectancy of a woman in Ireland in the 16th century was 40. Before she was that age, Grace O'Malley had risen far and away above her station of what was expected or even permitted of a woman in Gaelic law to inherit her father's lands, survive and thrive following her first husband's death, and cemented her legend as Gráinne Ireland's pirate queen. But both military and political power still lay before her. Before her 40th birthday, Gráinne renounced her widowhood and took a second husband. But this time the marriage would be entirely on her own terms. The chosen bachelor was Richard Burke, known as Richard on Irren, or Richard in Irons. He was the head of the powerful Norman Burke family of Connacht, and his father had served as the MacWilliam of Mayo the MacWilliam being the most powerful political position in the west of Ireland. Richard's nickname of Irons came from two legends, of the ironworks of his lands and supposedly of an old suit of armour he wore in battle, which was extremely unusual in Gaelic Ireland at a sure sign of his Norman heritage. He was a well-connected, formidable warrior, he had fought friend and foe his entire military career and stood by birthright to inherit the McWilliamship of Mayo. In short, Richard on Erin Burke was the perfect match for Grace O'Malley. But the marriage would still be on the terms of Gráinne They elected for that most glorious custom of Brehenlaw, Gaelic Ireland, which was a trial marriage of one year. At the end of the first year, if either party was unsatisfied, they could walk away from the marriage, dowry, and honour intact. These were extremely common in Ireland until the end of Gaelic rule at the end of the century, and it was considered that there was no area in which Ireland differed more to the rest of Catholic Europe than in marriage. Richard Burke's most valuable asset to Grania Whale was Carrickahowley or Rockfleet Castle, still standing in Newport, County Mayo. The 18-metre, four-storey-high tower house looked out onto Grace O'Malley's beloved Clue Bay. Grace kept her chambers on the top floor, with the rope from her favourite galley permanently tied to the post of her bed, so that she may escape to her true home of the sea at any point. When not in battle, negotiation, or at sea, Gráinne lived almost exclusively at Rockfleet Castle for the rest of her life. And of all of her lands and islands, it is this castle that was said to be associated with the Pirate Queen more than any other. Despite the eligibility of the match, it is said that when the year of trial marriage was up, Grace seized Rockfleet Castle and locked her husband outside. From the top floor she called down to the man banging on the doors, Richard Burke, I dismiss you, gaining a castle and ridding herself of a husband in one swift command. Their divorce, however, did not last very long. They were far too valuable to each other, and the two would rule the lands and seas of the west of Ireland for the next twenty years. Grace had given birth to three children by her first husband, Donalon Koga, and Richard had either been married or fathered several illegitimate children himself. But together they had one child, Tibbet Nalong, known to the English as Theobald Burke, but his Irish sobriquet stemming from the incredible story of his birth and the naval heritage he was inherit from his mother, Theobald of the Ships. Due to the length of time and extent of her legend as a sea captain, Gráinne was often rumoured to have given birth at sea. The night after Tibbet's birth, Gráinne crew were attacked by Algerian pirates. The frequent accounts of raids from North Africa at the time gave some credence to this story. The crew begged for Gráinne to come and help them fend off the enemy pirates. From her chambers below deck, as she held her newborn son, exhausted from the pangs of childbirth, Grace called up to her crew, "'May you be seven times worse off this day twelve months, he who cannot do without me for one day!' Graniweil wrapped a blanket around herself and went up to bolster her crew. She raised their spirits, and as she fired a musket at the attacking Algerians, she cried, Take this from unconsecrated hands! A reference to the Catholic custom that a woman after childbirth was unfit to participate in church ceremonies until she had underwent a churching or cleansing ceremony. Following the events of his tumultuous and glorious birth, Tibbett Nalong was fostered to another noble family. This was another incredibly common tradition of Gaelic Ireland. The fostered child could depend on his adopted family for support and loyalty throughout their life. And to the family that did the fostering, they would earn the favour and allies in the powerful Burke and O'Malley dynasty. Given all he stood to inherit, Tibbet was raised with the sword and the sail. But he was also raised in both the Irish and English languages which, coupled with his father's military prowess, his mother's sea power and political acumen, ensured that Tibbenton Long had a very bright future in a turbulent and changing Ireland. And why was Ireland turbulent and changing? Ah yes, England. Ireland had never been a focus point for Queen Elizabeth I. The growing threat of war with Catholic Spain and its king, Philip II, the champion of the Catholic Counter-Reformation, was a tremendous distraction. But that did not mean that Ireland was not a nuisance. It always had been. War with Ireland was not a wise or financially feasible option. But what was, was an increase of the tactic that had been spearheaded by her father, King Henry VIII. Plantations. Gaelic Ireland was still ruled by countless petty kingdoms of the Tua clan culture that had dated back to the arrival of the Celts. It had a strong and firm system of laws, cultures and customs. But the greatest downside to the political structure of Gaelic Ireland was a lack of uniformity. Not since Brian Boru could any chieftains band together for long enough to form a large enough army to defend the country from outside interference, especially not from the wealthy, powerful, and astonishingly uniformed England. This came to direct conflict with Gráinne and her husband when Richard's claim to the MacWilliamship of Mayo was threatened. Richard Burke was the or second-in-command to the MacWilliam ship. His father had been the McWilliam, and the MacWilliam ship was Richard's birthright. However, the current McWilliam had come under pressure by the Queen's deputy in Ireland, Sir Henry Sidney, who demanded the McWilliam submit to English rule, allow sheriffs and tariffs. The McWilliam refused, so Sidney cut off the McWilliam's resources, the gallow glass. The Gallowglass were mercenary soldiers from Scotland who were seasonally hired by Irish chieftains. But mercenaries are mercenaries, and Sidney lured those Gallowglass hired by the Macwilliam with a larger pay. With his defences severely weakened, the Macwilliam met with Lord Deputy Sidney in the city of Galway and was forced to bend to English rule. He accepted a knighthood and an English sheriff in Mayo. The MacWilliam had arrived in Galway, a Gaelic chieftain, and left an indentured English knight. This threatened everything that Richard and Irons had been waiting for. Under Gaelic law, the MacWilliam ship would pass to the Tarnishta, Richard himself, but under English rule, the post would pass to the current MacWilliam's son. But the one who realized this, and more importantly the one who knew how to stop this, was Gráinne Grace O'Malley's first husband, Donal of the Battles, had also served as Tarnisher, and had been usurped under English law. Gráinne would not deny a second husband his birthright. The next time Lord Deputy Sidney arrived in Galway to quell a minor rebellion, the one who met him was Grace O'Malley and her armada. Granuale offered assistance to the Lord Deputy of England. Sidney was impressed, and seeing her sea power and her skill in political conversation, not to mention the fact that her forces nearly outnumbered his own, he chose to accept the aid of Grandwale. Sidney was keen to see the defensive walls of Galway from the ocean side. So Gronuel took him out in one of her galleys. And, business being business, Grace demanded payment for the service. The receipt of this exchange was meticulously recorded by Sidney and survives today. But Sidney was accompanied by his son, the poet and soldier Sir Philip Sidney, who found in grainne the most fascinating leader he had ever encountered. It was remarked as astonishing that a Gaelic-Irish chieftain and an English nobleman could have so much to talk about. Conversation included how another naval commander, Christopher Columbus, had made a pit stop on the west of Ireland on his way to colonize the New World. With his poetic way with words, it is Sir Philip Sidney's account of this meeting with Grania Whale that tells us how it is her charisma, self-rule and political acumen that made her the dominant force in her marriage to Richard Burke. There came to me also a most famous feminine sea captain called Granny Amalia, and offered her services unto me, wheresoever I would command her, with three galleys and two hundred fighting men, either in Ireland or Scotland. She brought with her her husband, for she was as well by sea as by land, well more than Mrs. Mate with him. He was of the nether Burks, And now as I hear, MacWilliam Uter, and called by nickname Richard in Iron. This was a notorious woman in all the coasts of Ireland. Folks, as you all know, Fireside is a proud son of the Headstuff Podcast Network, which is Ireland's largest network of independent podcasts and a loving home for the creative and indeed the curious. There are so many other podcasts I could recommend to you on the network, some of which inspired me to approach Headstuff myself. Here's a taste of one you might enjoy. I'm Conor Reid with words to that effect. How do the Victorians invent time? Where do all those pirate clichés come from? Should we all read romance novels? Why are kids so obsessed with dinosaurs? What makes the perfect detective story? What happens to culture and society in a post-apocalyptic world where everything has stopped? Words to that effect tell stories of the fiction that shapes popular culture. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts and at WTTEpodcast.com. And that is the end of Grania Wale, well more than Mrs. Mate on Fireside, and I hope you enjoyed it. Yes, dense, dense stuff here. Um, Starts off fairly easily. Um, We've We've got the very clear and very interesting circumstances of Grace's second marriage to Richard in Irons Burke. So yeah, like to I was quite conscious that the last two episodes have focused on have opened with Grace's age. And I don't wanna just like focus too much on that. But she did just have this remarkably long career and especially given how much she did when she was very, very young and how much she did when she was older. I just felt like it's it's quite well marked out in the Ann Chambers biography, and just from a storytelling point of view, it just seemed to create a clear image in my head that just impressed me more so, uh, especially with this, with this second marriage. So she'd already been widowed about 10 years, maybe, and during that time she would essentially ruled the the coastlines of Western Ireland and had risen her legend in piracy and taken on several lovers and everything. But as she grew a bit older, clearly there was this idea for Grand New Whale that she would need to secure more political power, especially with a very, very changing Ireland. So Richard, Richard Burke is chosen, who stood to inherit the McWilliam ship. And then we lead to this incredible account. I remember from the first time I read this biography a couple of years ago, this was probably the thing that stood out to me the very most, that Granuelle had given birth at sea, and that this son, Tibbeton along, that the night after his birth they had been attacked by these Algerian pirates, and that she was called up that her crew couldn't survive without their captain, and she rose up to help fend off the, the pirates after just having given birth, and they're just, I don't think there's a single moment... That sums up the legend of everything that was Grania Whale in that moment of still of like of uh, leading a crew of pirates that could not survive without her even for one night after just doing what no other pirate captain at that time had had ever done, certainly not in Gaelic Ireland, which was give birth. You know, that was not something that Byard's ever had to deal with before was their captain having to give birth below. And even still, she was still able to lead this man. So that shows like how much they loved her, how much they needed her, and how much she was able to constantly, constantly rise to each occasion. And of course, a lot of these, especially these quotes from her, these are coming from legends and folk tales, and could have been built up and everything. But when there is... I said a couple of weeks ago, an almost Sherlockian pro- process of deduction, like it, it, there are plenty of accounts that there was a lot of North African raids off the, the west coast of Ireland, as I'm sure went the other way as well, um, all these little details and the fact that it was tipping along, Theobald, Theobald of the ships, That's that's our that's our inclination that Theobald was born at sea and suddenly just like the more things that you find out are true the more you can rule out what is false and in the end naturally it doesn't matter for our purposes you know we're not going to let the truth get in the way of a good story but this almost likely is true that's the part that i find tricky while i'm not a historian that this the history of it is so unbelievably fascinating so theobald's work is is born and he's fostered like like they all are and then we get into, this is the very, very dense, and this is the hardest stuff for me to do, N- naturally the the socio-political elements of the relations between Ireland and England over the past 800 years is naturally a very, very dense and complicated and potent subject. And this is probably one of the most complex and complicated periods, and... It is not in the interests of this podcast or it is not in my skills um to make this clear, so I will touch on it um where it is absolutely necessary for the story as and try my hardest to make it as clear as possible for myself, as much for all of you, dear listeners um but yes, this is where it gets dense, so basically at this time, King Henry the had become. He was the first declared king of England and Ireland. He was the first one to introduce the shamrock or the 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 harp as the symbol of Ireland, and uh, what it was a harp with a little crown above it. So, from the time of King Henry the Eighth, Ireland was officially under English domain, but it was still very much Gaelic Ireland with all of its individual tour clans and its chieftains and its families, its O'Neils, its Burkes, its O'Malleys, all of that. Um, and so then you had two short rules in between. You had uh, Ed- Edward the Fourth, Henry VIII's son, and you had Mary the First, Mary Tudor, uh, Mary Tudor uh, named by her Protestant enemies as Bloody Mary, who tried to bring England back to Catholicism, which Henry had abolished uh, after be after denouncing the Pope in Rome when he was refused a divorce to his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, and. Establishing the Church of England Mary was the Daughter of Henry's First wife Catherine of Aragon who was a Catholic Princess and So by the time Mary became Queen she wanted to bring England back to Catholicism um, In honour of Her mother Um, but she ended up doing This mostly by burning Protestants at the stake uh, And she Ended up dying um, Young enough uh, I think she had uh, ovarian cancer or something very, very awful. Um, So after she died, there was a bit of a power struggle uh, between Mary, Queen of Scots, who would have made England Catholic again, like Mary would have wanted, and Elizabeth, who was considered the bastard daughter of Henry VIII by his second wife, Anne Boleyn, who was the first one who he beheaded. But in the end of that power struggle, Elizabeth rose up and she permanently made England Protestant. So, <laughs> you have a very much now, and that led England into this new golden age uh, of this 40-year reign of Queen Elizabeth I, in which you get a huge, huge, tremendous rise in commerce and economics and art. This is where you've got Shakespeare. This is uh, this is where you've got Elizabethan society with the roughs and the fashion and all that, and it becomes one of the most identifiable periods of... of what is an incredibly interesting history in England. So I emphasize just that, that brief cliff notes of the Catholic Protestant very recent debacle at this time in England because then you've got very, 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 very Catholic Ireland right beside them. Now Ireland was small and self-interested and not uniformed, and they were all still kicking the shite out of each other. They were not nearly a big threat, but Spain was. Spain, where Catherine of Aragon, the former Queen of England had come from, had now got this. So Elizabeth was the leader of this reformation. Philip II, the King of Spain, considered himself the champion of Catholicism, of a counter-reformation to try and make Europe more Catholic again. So that is why Ireland became of interest to England, because Ireland was Catholic and was a threat if Philip could get to Ireland and win over the Irish and win them as allies, as he kind of did, then suddenly England was banked on both sides and suddenly Ireland stood to be a very big threat. That said, it wasn't, that was all a bit away, so they couldn't justify just sending a big army over to Ireland, so she increased the plantations, which was the transplanting of... English noblemen and settlers in lieu of payment for their services in battle by giving them lands in Ireland. And what about the people who already lived those lands? They were then moved off those lands, (laughs) basically. So none of this really impacted Gráinne Wael at all as she lived her very, very rural coastal life because very little of this stuff ever reached Connacht. This is getting forward a bit, but a couple of hundred years later when we've got uh, the rule of Oliver Cromwell, during, what did they even call that period of history where they killed the king, basically? Um, and during the high points of the the, tra- the plantations under Cromwell and the proper subjugation of the Irish, uh, Cromwell had this this title, which I have mentioned in one of these episodes, where he said that the Irish could go to hell or connacht. So Connacht being the realm of... Connacht is the province where the Irish languages survived the most. Um, it's where Gaelic Ireland survived the longest. Possibly geographically because it was the furthest away and it was probably the most disparately populated. But so very little of this toing and froing between England and Ireland would have affected Grace O'Malley. But when she got involved in politics with the marriage to her second husband, then it suddenly became a very, very big deal. And that is why she then had to ensure and start playing ball with England while also still remaining her own chieftain and head of her own family and not accepting these these sheriffs and these may of these english sheriffs in mayo i'm already gone over time now but just to finish finish with this incredible quote this incredible quote at the end from sir philip Sidney, this poet who was the son of the lord deputy of ireland this is another point where we have everything we need to know about Grania Whale. Like the fact that it's her who's talked about. Like he's just writing his own notes and he describes this woman coming over, this woman with her husband, not this Gaelic chieftain. He was the one with the power, he was the Taunish, he stood to, he was the proper chieftain and he was a man. Um but Sir Philip Sidney just m- notices meeting this woman, and so many of the great quotes we get about Whale are from here from this from this little note he wrote um from the most famous feminine sea captain uh she was as well by land as by sea well more than Mrs. Mate with him and this was a notorious woman in all the coasts of Ireland this exists, this is an account from an official statesman of England about this, this random pirate warrior on the west coast of Ireland and this was the son of the Lord Deputy of one of the most, if not the most powerful man in Ireland from England's point of view and this was how impressed he was with Gráinne and this so eloquently details both how she would have come across to other people and certainly where she stood in her marriage to Richard Burke. And with that, that wasn't too bad. I don't think that was too rambly. I hope that I hope that made some clarify some things for people who may not know as much about this if for the details that I couldn't get in the script. Um, but yeah, as we go forward, and Growell becomes further embroiled with. with the Tudors, with Elizabeth I. I will attempt to streamline this as much as possible. And if anyone has any questions, I'll, of course, be very, very happy to answer because this isn't a period of history I would be a total expert about, but over the years I've learned more and more about it. And it's interesting because I probably know more about the English side of it than the Irish side of it because having studied Shakespeare in college, I did a huge amount of study in Elizabethan society. Um, so I'm well familiar with what was going on in England at this time. And then through the podcast and just through my general interest in Irish history over the years, I've pieced together the little pieces of Gaelic Ireland. So if anyone doesn't have any questions or wants me to go into anything further, do let me know. Uh, and with that, I will wrap things up before my voice goes any more. Let's give me it's not a bad. it's a nice little husk we've got there. But I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Um, apologies again that it was late. Please do follow me over on Instagram at Fireside Bard. Buy my book Garden Sea at uh, Headstuff.org or on Kindle at Amazon.co.uk. Uh, links are in the description below. Subscribe to Headstuff Plus at HeadstuffPodcast.com. Uh, Next week we have an incredible folk tale uh, Another folk tale of the sea Or rather of the streams We have the tale of the joint eater This was an absolute find This story uh, reminded me of some of the very Very first episodes that we did Of this podcast I look forward to sharing it with you all I'll see you all you'll hear me on next time Remember wherever you are and wherever you go You can always join me by the fireside